All righty, all righty, all righty. Well, come on back. And we are going to take a look at the 22nd chapter of the book of Luke. That's where we are. Somebody said to me this week or sent me a message. It feels like we've been in Luke for uh, a couple years. And <laughs> but you know what? It's nice to linger long on what the Lord has for us, right? Isn't that beautiful? So, so that's what we're doing. We're uh, going through there. Uh, we're, you know, we've gone through 20 for 21 chapters, so that must mean we've been in uh, Luke at least 35 plus weeks, I guess. Oh, they're having fun downstairs. That's good. Good. Yeah. But we're going to continue on as we now are about a day away in the story from Jesus marching to the cross. You say to yourself, as you turn to Luke, and now I tell you to turn somewhere else, you say to yourself, well, I've heard this story before. <laughs> well, yeah. But how about turn over to just for instance, we could go a million places in the New Testament. Let's go over to Romans 5. Put, put your finger in Luke 22. Go over to Romans 5, verse 6. Read with me. I'll wait for you to get there. Romans 5, verse 6. Ready? The word of the Lord. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. Hmm. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, enemies, spiritually gross and repugnant, You know, I don't think Americans know how sinful we are. <laughs> the things that lurk in our hearts, the evil, the darkness. Here it says God demonstrates his love towards us, his own love, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when it was easy, when it was the most difficult Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified by his blood, you've been declared not guilty by the blood of Christ if you surrendered your life to Christ, if you accepted him, as you put your trust in him. You have been declared not guilty, whether you feel it or not, the gavel comes down in the courtroom of God and says, not guilty because of the blood. You're justified. It's a judicial, it's a spiritually judicial decree. Nothing you did, it's all what Christ has done that the Father can call you justified. Having been justified by his blood, verse 9, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Prior to coming to Christ, folks, we are children of wrath. The Bible says it. What did Christ do on the cross? 
Of course, there was trepidation about his physical death, but why do you think he was sweating blood in the garden we're going to see today? Because he knew that the wrath of God would be poured out on him. How do I know? Because he says, if, I, if there's any other way, just let this cup pass for me. The cup in the Old Testament always speaks of the wrath and fury of God against sin. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, look at this, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. In other words, because of what Christ has accomplished, we can come back to God. We're back with God. Now, knowing that, we're going to turn back to Luke I just gave you the punchline of the sermon, but I think it's important as you're reading through this, as it is a story that many of you know a lot about, that you would remember that his death accomplished so much. So here, read with me and we'll pray. Now, verse 1 of chapter 22 of Luke. Now, the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Then, verse 7, came the day of unleavened bread with the, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, following him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room. There make ready. So they went and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. And we're going to read more today, but how about we go ahead and pray here and ask the Lord for help. Lord, thank you so much for your eternal word. Thank you, Lord, uh, that we can come and read and glean from your love letter to us. <laughs> All these 66 books by these 40-some authors, perfectly put together by your Holy Spirit, Lord, that it come and do its work in our hearts, the Word, by the Spirit of God, and help us to live in a world that hates us, in an alien world, so to speak, and then, Lord, to go out and to share your love and your light with people who are dying. Thank you, Lord, that you're the God of the living. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I guess what you'd need to know uh, to begin this is that we're at now what's called the Passover time. 
In the Old Testament, you understand, the Passover, as many of you know, is found in Exodus. Is found in Exodus. Oh, time out. I forgot something. Everybody, it's the Cybles last week here. They've just bought a house in Nashville, and that's sad, so I'll start crying, but I'll get through it. They prayed for Nashville. I prayed against it. Their prayers are more effective. No, I'm kidding. So, but anyway, afterwards, right afterwards, we're just going to come right up here and gather around them and pray for them and send them off, okay? So make sure you tell them bye and that you love them. And um, anyway, sad for us. New adventure for them. Okay, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which is called Passover. You, you would need to know that in Exodus, you know the story, when the Israelites were in Egypt... Pharaoh wouldn't let them go, but finally he would let them go when the angel of death flew over their house and killed their firstborn, but the way in which the Israelites were saved is they took the blood of a lamb and they put it over their doorpost, they spread it over the doorpost, which meant the angel of death would fly over or pass over. You know that story. So God commemorated that or memorialized that and said that there's these several feasts that you must follow, Israelites. And one of those feasts was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is also called Passover. Now, let me explain it to you. It's an eight-day feast. The first day is Passover. They celebrate this. And then the seven days after that is a time in which they remove all the leaven out of their houses in the Old Testament. Because what happened during the Passover? God said, put your belt on, get your sandals on, because you're going to eat this thing and go back in Exodus. And uh, uh, that meant that they didn't even have time to leaven their bread. And oh, by the way, leaven in the Bible is always a picture of sin. So what happens when the Lord saves you? This is the picture of Passover and unleavened bread. Well, after the Lord saves you, what does he do? He begins to sanctify you and bring out all the leaven. Get it? And that's the picture. And so sometimes in the Bible, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread is that eight-day period they're talking about. Sometimes it's the Passover. They call it the Passover. They're talking about those eight days. But sometimes when they say Passover, they're just talking about the first day. Everybody get that? All right. And also in Deuteronomy 16.16, the Bible or God required that the Jews, the Israelites, would come back into Jerusalem no matter where they lived in Israel for the feast. So there's a lot of things that are going on right here that maybe you need to know, and that's this. Josephus tells us that there's about, they took a census one time. I talked about this in a sermon last week or the week before. And they, uh, one of the governors of uh, Israel didn't think the Passover was a big deal or serious or packed or crowded. So Josephus takes a census of how many lambs were slaughtered during the Passover, and it came to about 265,000 lambs. Now, if you know this, many times or in the Old Testament, one lamb would handle 10 people in a family at least. So think about how many people were in Jerusalem. 2.65 million, and I can't do math very well. Or so, many people estimate. 
And the festivals and the feast always had this messianic fervor. The Israelites were looking for the Messiah. And what, as Rome or Romans, did they not want to have happen at any time on their watch? They didn't want the peace to be disturbed. That's why Pontius Pilate was actually in the city of Jerusalem. He actually lived in a place called Caesarea Maritime, which is about, I don't know, 40 miles maybe up the coast, out to the coast and up the coast from Jerusalem. But he was there. Why was Pontius Pilate there? He was there because he had to keep the peace. He was already in trouble with Rome, but that's for another day. Also, the Herod was there. Herod from up north, one of the Herods. Why was he in town? Keep the peace. There was this messianic fervor, and this place was bursting and busting with people and lambs and the smells. And think about it. When they slaughtered the lambs, they had an aqueduct, and it ran down into the Kidron Brook, which is right under the Temple Mount before you go up the Mount of Olives. Think about the smell of the bloody 265,000 slaughtered lambs. That'd be rough. But the Feast of the Unleavened Bread draws near, which is called the Passover. And look, these chief priests and the scribes sought how they might, can you believe this says this? Kill him, murder him, kill him, for they feared the people. They didn't fear God, but they feared the people. Are you noticing that? And at the highest, holiest festival of God that God has instituted, The Jews are preparing for the festival. The religious leaders are preparing for a murder. This chapter should expose things for you. It's going to expose the hearts of people who are without Christ. The Bible says, you know this, right? That the heart is deceptively wicked. Do you believe that song that we sang up there? I felt like you all were looking at me about how I'm prone to lie and to justify. And right, that lurks in my heart without the Lord. Doesn't it lurk in your heart? And this is going to expose people. These are the major religious people of the time, the chief priests and the lawyers, the scribes, the the experts of the law. They are fed up with him making the claims that he's making that's going to upset their religious apple cart. So they're planning to kill him. They've said it before, and now they're mentioning it here. They fear the people. Then Satan, so so we have the, the religious leaders, they're exposed. Now, this one called Judas, you know this, but I think about it. Judas has Satan enter him, and his name is Iscariot. Now, Bible scholars can't really pinpoint what or where Iscariot was. We know this. He was the treasurer of the money. Isn't that funny? And he was prone to skim off the top a little bit, right? And we do know that Of course, we think, as we read all the Gospels, that he is the one that's expecting the Messiah to come and overturn the Romans. And when Jesus, in his estimation, it's not what I'm about ready to say, but in his human perspective, when he sees Jesus just giving up and submitting to this death, he gets really angry. He's expecting something else out of Jesus, which, folks... 
don't set expectations on Jesus that aren't part of the Bible. When you expect him to do one thing and he does another, remember, he's the captain of our salvation, not you. Here, Satan enters Judas. I mean, this man was sent out earlier to heal as part of the disciples' discipleship program, to go out into the towns and villages. He got, didn't he? He heard Jesus for two and a half, three years, and he was even sent out on some things and was part of all these meetings and, and sleepovers and day walks and healings and all that. And he got, listen, listen, he got really close to salvation, but he never came into that place. Really close to the kingdom of God, but never came in which is, describes America and Christians. We have a ton of American Christians running around, going to church, serving on committees, and they're real close, but they've never let Jesus in their hearts. We've never let Jesus in our hearts. Here, Satan enters Judas, because what does Satan pounce on? The destroyer, the liar, the murderer, what does he pounce on? He takes little strongholds like money or uh, being um, uh, uh, slighted. How did they get uh, passed over for me to teach on Wednesdays? The pastor never asked me. Why does he keep asking that person or this? Why doesn't he ask me? You let those little strongholds come in and then bitterness springs up. And the next thing you know, Satan is taking you like uh, Judas down a path that you never even intended to go. Iscariot may mean that he's from a city called Carioth. It's in southern Judea. And this then would, listen to this, make Ju uh, uh, Judas the only Judean among the disciples. Think about that. The others were Galileans. Maybe Judas had finally had enough of it, be, uh, thinking that they were getting treated better than he was. Others think the name Iscariot is li uh, linked to a word called Sicarius, which means assassin which would mean he was in a connected to the Jewish zealots who did underground warfare against the Romans. And since Jesus wasn't going to overtake the Romans at that coming, but in the second coming, you know, he'll fight off all oppressors. But at that coming, he wasn't going to do it. It just upsetted him, or upset him so much. Or, you know, it might be that he was following selfish motives uh, to receive a position of great status or something, and, 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 and Satan, the enemy of our souls, pounced on that and took him down a road maybe he'd never intended. <laughs> so he's surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray them. See, this, this fell, I mean, the, the, cap, the, the chief priests and the religious leaders are like, yes, we don't want to do this publicly because if we announce it publicly, there might be an uprising, but this just sort of, quote unquote, fell into their lap that one of the twelve is going to give him up. And they're like, yes, we don't have to do it publicly. We can do it by some intrigue and espionage kind of ways in the dark. You see that? The point is, though, that Jesus was under control. God uses this whole thing to take Jesus to the cross, even the betrayal of a buddy. God used to take him to the cross on the day in which 
Jesus needed to go to the cross. Jesus was in control. Well, they were glad, isn't that weird, and agreed to give him some money. And if you read the account in Matthew 26, you knew that they gave uh, 30 pieces of silver, which in Exodus 21, verse 32, tells us that that's the price for a slave. If, in, in the law, if an uh, a animal come by, come, come by and you know, gored, hurt a slave you were responsible to pay 30 pieces of silver back to the owner. It's the price of a slave. Agreed to give him money, so he promised and sought opportunity to betray him uh, to them in the absence of the multitude, quietly, in a garden. And that's important. Well, then came the day of the unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare that Passover for us that we may eat. Now, you know this, right? You know, uh, if you've been to a Seder dinner, there's a certain structure to the Passover meal that the Jewish uh, people would uh, do every single time. You, you know this, right? They would have four cups of the wine. They would have, um, you know, certain things that represented, certain items that represented the bitter tears of the Israelites, uh, uh, you know, as they're enslaved in Egypt and as they're being called out. And there's certain sentences that they would read and there's certain psalms that they would sing. There was an order to it. Everybody tracking with me? That's important for this story, I think, to marvel at what's happening here. And he said to them, behold, listen, he's in control, just like he was with the colt when he rode in on the triumphal entry. He had made this deal, or uh, I don't know if that's the right way of saying it. He, he'd arranged for a man who would be carrying a pitcher of water. Back then, the, the ladies would carry the pitcher of water, so this would stand out to them who they were sending in there. You shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I meet? Then he's going to give you this large upper room and there make ready. So he went and found it, just as he has said, and they prepared the Passover. And I'll just address this briefly. If you want to do this, I want you to be a Berean and study this for yourself. The mention of the Passover brings up a real thorny issue of the precise calendar chronology of these events. The issue is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke present this meal Jesus will have as the Passover meal, normally eaten with a lamb, of course. Yet John, in John 13.1, seems to indicate that the meal took place before the Passover and that Jesus was actually crucified, John 18.28, on the Passover. Many people and lots of people talk about the different calendars that were in use. Did you know this? There were calendars that were different. Jesus died as the Passover victims were being slayed according to the official calendar, but he had held the Passover with his followers the previous evening according to an unofficial calendar. What are the official calendars? There's the Jewish calendar and there's a Roman calendar. So some people believe that uh, uh, from sunset to sunset or from sunrise to sunrise was a day. 
Do you get it? There's two different calendars, and you could do it in two different ways, from sunset to sunset. Now, think about that. If you were at sunset on Thursday night, and that started your day, and it ran to sunset on Friday night, well, you would call it Friday. Are you catching that? And so there are these complicated issues. I'm not going to go into it too much, but study about it and be a good Berean, okay? Uh, if, in fact, uh, well, some people believe uh, Jesus ate it on Thursday night and didn't even have a Passover meal or a lamb, excuse me. They had it without the lamb because he was the lamb. Maybe, maybe not. You be a Berean there. If he did use a lamb... Think about what had to happen. Those disciples had to walk down to the temple with the lamb, get it slain, bring it back to the upper room and prepare it. Think about that. We know from the New Testament that Jesus is our Passover lamb. Okay, now, they prepare this. And Jesus then institutes the Lord's Supper, what we call the Lord's Supper, and here's how he did it. When the hour had come, he sat down, and the 12 apostles with him. The first thing I want you to notice here is one of the great things about communion that maybe you never think about. We'll talk about some different reasons, but one of the great things about communion that maybe you never think about is the Passover meal was supposed to be eat, eaten in families. You say, well, I... Well, I won't go there, but when we take the meal, the Lord's Supper, first of all, notice it's called the Lord's, Lord's Supper. It's not the Calvary Chapel Supper. It's not the Methodist Supper. It's not the whatever, Lutheran Supper, Baptist. It's not that. It's the Lord's Supper, and we do it in families, so one aspect that we rarely talk about, but it's so true, think about it. Bread, you crush grain, different individual pieces of grain, and then you bake it in a furnace or an oven, and it comes together as one. Wine, you crush thousands of grapes, thousands of grapes, you do the whole deal, and you bring it together, and it's one single drink. Isn't that interesting? And what is the thing that's happening there or being signified? Look, you're linking yourself most importantly with Christ in his death. But wait a minute. <laughs> you're linking together. There's unity here. Whether you go to that Lutheran church or that Baptist church, catch it. You know, there might be people out there that have different eschatology than us, maybe some minor or uh, um, peripheral different doctrinal uh, issues and, and ways of thinking. But when you come to the cross, or excuse me, when you come to the table, and it's just us with the Lord, with the simple, uncomplicated little piece of bread and the simple wine or juice we're knit together we're brothers and sisters in Christ and there's unity there and he comes and he says the hour had come so he sat down not with a family but with his family the 12 apostles and he said to them with fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer 
For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He's doing away, right, with this supper because in Revelation 19.9, he wants all of us, any of us, to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. He wants us to, in heaven, enjoy ourselves with him in fellowship. But here, now during this time, he took the cup. Folks, listen to this. Remember, he was supposed to do the order of the Jewish Seder. Read about the bitter or bitter tears. Read about coming out of uh, Egypt. But he says something different. He takes some of these elements that are part of a Seder dinner, and he says, he doesn't say it, but he does it. We're doing something different here. Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I won't drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He blew away. He just, <laughs> there's something new company coming. I know because you're Jewish men here expecting me to go through the order I'm going to just simply break the bread, give you the wine. Of course, they went through the meal. I know that. They went through the meal. This is at the end of the meal when it's the cup after supper. I get that. But he blew them away with this new thing. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Not only is a communion table for unity, it's to remember Christ and that his body was broken for us and he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you which is shed for you but behold uh, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table can you imagine can you even imagine the compassion and the patience and the ability to let his father work things out Man, isn't that a lesson for us? Here he is, and he knows the one that's betraying him is right there at the table with him, sharing the meal, faking it. And he still gives him opportunity to repent. What would we do? We'd kick him out. Get out of here. You don't believe the same stuff I do. Do this in remembrance of me. This one is there, my betrayer is with me, and truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Remember, Son of Man is a messianic title. You could read, I won't take you there, Psalm 41.9, write it down. It's been determined that he suffer and die, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Did you notice how close or how hidden Judas's betrayal was to the other 11? They'd, they'd been with him all this time. They didn't know it was him. He must have hidden it. He must have put the smile on. He must have said stuff like this. God bless you, brother. I'll pray for you. Oh, did you hear that uh, worship today? It was so amazing. Serving down at the soup kitchen, going on missions trips, giving money, but taking a little off the top, posing in all ways, just faking it. I feel like there's many in the Christian church who we fake it. The Lord says, let's just get real. Admit these things. Come to me. Tell me 
um, uh, what it is that you've done. Repent of them and come and just live your life transparently. Don't hide. See what happens when you hide things. (laughs) Well, so there was also a dispute among them. By the way, you know this, right? One massive thing that Jesus did on this night is left out of the other Gospels except for John, and that is after the supper, he girds himself up and he gets down on his knees and he washes their feet. And the reason I'm telling you that is because watch what gets exposed here. So now Judas is totally exposed. The religious leaders are totally exposed. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus is exposed. He fervently desires. He doesn't just say, I want to do this with you because I love you so much. He shows them by getting down on his knees and washing their feet, instituting this new covenant. What was the old covenant? Perform, perform, perform. What's the new covenant? Grace, grace, grace. Where was the old covenant written? On tablets of hard, cold stone. Where's the new covenant written? It's written on the hearts of men and women, boys and girls. What was the new covenant? How was it written out? You know, with a chisel and a hammer. King, king, king. How's the, uh, did I say new covenant? With the old covenant, how's it written out? With a chisel and a hammer. The new covenant, how's it written out? In blood. What's a covenant? It's this agreement between God and man. The old covenant was, you do this, you get this. The new covenant is, I've done it all. You get to do everything. Did you get the difference? Because you've done it all, Lord, and you've given me everything. You've come down here. I didn't have to reach up. You came down. I just surrender and receive all that you have for me. Now you give me a new uh, life spiritually, and I have the Holy Spirit, so now I can go out and love and love and love. And you fulfilled the old covenant for me. You lived it perfectly so that you see me, Father, as perfectly righteous. Isn't that the best ever? How could we ever tire of singing about that? So he goes, and he's going to now... Before the disciples get too confident here, because they're going to have a hard thing to do, just like you have a hard thing to do, live as an alien in a world. We're just passing through, going to the heavens. But they got a hard thing to do, and that's to live here, and they're going to be crucified and beaten and die for their faith. He says, well, there was a dispute among them. So funny. Is this human nature? When I first read this, I say, you people. I mean, that is so stupid. And then I stop. And I go, oh, it's just like me. There was a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. In other words, benefactors are people who get the credit for stuff. You ever seen at the bottom of a symphony program or a play or major benefactors. 
But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. Folks, if you really want to live, we sang about it today. It was great. Do you really want to live I mean live to the life to the fullest. Then the place that the Bible tells you to do it, or the way in which the Bible tells you to do it, is to give up your life and exchange it for his life. And he comes in and changes us from the inside out as saved, born-again people. And listen, he'll give you a desire to be the servant not the person who lords it over people with a big old thumb. And that's the greatest place to live. Why? Why? Why is it the greatest place to live as a servant? Because if you're a servant, you're already at the lowest. What do you care if somebody says, boy, you did a terrible job with that. You know, maybe it's unjust. You're, you, you're t- I mean, you what do you care? You say, you're right. I'm the lowest of the low. You just agree with your adversary quickly. Yes, I am the lowest of the low. Yes, I have these things lurking in my heart. You, you don't even know the half of what I am. But to be a servant means I never really have any expectations because all I'm doing is serving the Lord and others in between. And so if somebody steps on me or tells me I'm not doing, it doesn't even phase us because we're servants. See, but we're saved by grace, and although we're servants, we're going to get our heavenly crowns. See, the Bible tells us that if we live for ourselves now, that's all we'll ever get. Whatever we get now. But if we live for the Lord as servants, for eternity, you'll have crowns, and you'll be joyful And you'll have peace and strength. Not so for the ones who don't give up their lives for him. You have no expectations as a servant. None. You're a servant. You do what the father asked you. And you say, well, that doesn't sound very good. Yeah, it does because uh, it is great because we're running around as a society full of anxiety and worry and depression and stress and this and that and keeping up with an image and all that. And it's just crippling us when the Bible says, if you'll just give up your life, you'll be free to live completely with all out all that. But we are people who want to measure ourselves just like the disciples. Hey, you think when uh, we get in and you get rid of these uh, Romans, I could be the Secretary of State, Lord? You think maybe I could be the Treasurer? Could I have some position in your cabinet so people will love me? Who would be the greatest in your kingdom, Lord? Would it be me? Would it be John? Would it be Peter? Who would it? I mean, I know I've been quiet here, but, you know, give, give me some, you know, I'm not one of the ones mentioned all the time, but give me some status. And here he says, listen, if you just be a servant, you'll get your reward. How? But you are those, look at this, verse 28, who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom. Where's the kingdom of God? Well, I can see it in all of your hearts right here. Those who've surrendered their life to the Lord are being ruled and reigned by Christ right here. 
And when he comes back to the earth in his second coming, he's going to set up his rule and reign, and you who surrendered your life to Christ will participate in that. I bestow upon you a kingdom, these disciples, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. See, I'm not up trying to prohibit you from stuff. We're going to have a blast in heaven, he says. And you're going to sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And if you know the book of Revelation, chapter 21, you know their names will be on the foundation walls of the new Jerusalem, these 12 disciples. You ask me, is Judas on there? I'm going to let you figure that one out. So he exposes them. He says, be careful. I know you're in my inner circle, but be careful. There's things that lurk in there that you don't understand. You want to be the greatest, but if you really want to be the greatest and be totally set free, be a servant. Then he goes on to Peter himself. And remember, Peter means rock. He had already named Peter, Peter. Cephas is the Aramaic. Peter is the Greek. It means rock. Catch this now. Watch this. He'd already named him Peter. But at this point, the Lord said, Simon, Simon. Why do you think he went back to his old name? Some people think Simon means shifting sand. That's true, I think, but also I think there's another reason. Simon, you're reverting back to your old nature. (laughs) Who here reverts back to their old nature? Just go watch a sports youth program with some of you folks and your kid plays. And me, as the worst. But anyway, the Lord said, Simon, Simon. In other words, I'm reminding you, you're, you're, you're going back to your old nature right now. Indeed, Satan has asked for you. I want you to notice something. The you in the Greek, Y-O-U there, is not singular. It's plural. Which means it doesn't only just apply to Simon. Which means it applies to us. Satan has asked for you. Nobody can be plucked out of the hand of Christ. But once you come into the family of God, what do you think the enemy of our souls wants to do to you and to me? He wants to destroy our witness. What is the Lord after right now? More people in his kingdom through you. What is Satan after that he'd just demolish your witness so that nobody would listen? Here he says, Simon, Simon, reminding him, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Just sift you out and throw you on the trash heap. That's what Satan ultimately does. But I have prayed for you. Isn't that interesting that the Lord has prayed for his disciples? He's praying for you right now. Hebrews tells us that. That your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, can you imagine? Peter's here. He's at the, the supper. He's doing, and, and, and wait a minute. And, and he said, wait a minute, I'm going to fail you? No. There is no, listen to what's rising up in him, this indignation. There is no possible way I'd ever fail you. In fact, he says to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you. I'll go to prison if I have to. I'll go, and he, you, you, can you just see him hitting his hand on the, I, there's no way I would ever fail you. And what's interesting about that is Satan often often attacks us where we think we are strongest. Don't make declarative statements, folks. I'll never, 
I would never. Uh-huh. Okay. You got a big target on your back. Then he said in verse 34, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will die three times that you know me. I wonder right there, listen, listen. I wonder right there if Peter did one of these. Yeah, right. Just rolled his eyes. No way. There's no way. You can think what you want, Lord. Don't we say this in our prayers? You can think what you want, Lord, but I'm not doing that. There's no way I'd do that. When in reality, we need Jesus at every turn, every minute. And he said to them, verse 35, when I sent you without money, bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? And they said nothing. Remember when they sent him out before, it was a different environment. People were responding, liked the message. It was pretty, you know, because it didn't get close to the cross yet. And they were loving the message. But Jesus then does something. He goes, but now... Here's a big shift. He who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise, a knapsack. Things are changing. You're going to need some stuff. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Folks, most people believe this is an idiom. You know what an idiom is? Not an idiot, but an idiom. It's a phrase of language that kind of you put some words together you never normally would put together, I'll give you one, he's over the moon for her. Well, he's not really over the moon. He's in love with her, right? Most people believe this is an idiom because of what Jesus says later. He's saying, you uh, are going to uh, need everything that you have because it's never going to be easy from now on. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he who was numbered with the transgressors for the things concerning me have come to an end. In other words, you're not listening. I know you're not really paying attention. I've told you this several times, but I'm about ready to die. And if I die and they kill me, they're going to come after you. That's what he's saying. Watch the news right now, folks. Say something that's biblical, that's not politically correct, and watch people come after you. Well, they say, 38, Lord, look here, are two swords. They actually went out and bought a couple. Funny. They didn't get the -the over-the-moon idiom. They would go out and buy two swords. And he says to them, it's enough. In in other words, don't say another word. Don't, Don't keep on that track. That's not how we live. What does the Bible say? We don't war according to the fleshly things. We don't pull out knives and swords. We war according to the Word of God. The Word of God is a two-edged sword, sharp enough to cut people up in the best way. We don't lop people's ears off with it. We go after their soul and their spirit by the Word of God. We don't beat people up. We let the Word do its work. We fight a different way. Well, coming out, look at this. Coming out of where? He's up at the upper room. And if you go with us, I think you're going to see it's on one side, kind of the uh, uh, up to the top left on a map of the uh, uh, Temple Mount area. That's where they think it is. They're not 100% sure. Some people believe he did this because he speaks in John of going past and seeing the vine on the doors of the temple. And then he would come out. There's a little valley in front of the Temple Mount, and down in the valley is a little brook called the Kidron Valley, 
or the Kidron or the brook Kidron. Guess what Kidron means in the Hebrew? Dark or murky. And of course, it would have been at that time. If those many lambs would have been slain, that little brook, that little creek, whatever you want to call it, would be full of blood. And here he comes down uh, the Mount of Olives over the Kidron Valley or through the Kidron Valley, and he gets, or comes down from the Temple Mount, sorry, through the Kidron Valley, and he goes up to the Mount of Olives. It's just a gentle sloping hill, and he was accustomed to do this. He did this every night, and his disciples follow him. And when he comes to the place, he says to them, isn't it fascinating? Pray that you may not enter into temptation. That phrase is, don't succumb to the evil power, or don't succumb to power that's evil. He's telling us not to just pray for the positive, but to pray for protection, that we don't enter into temptation. Sound familiar? Lord's Prayer. And verse 41, he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Again, what is he saying there? He's saying this cup of wrath that's about ready to be poured out at the cross, the cup of wrath, the wrath that's poured out on Jesus to him was terrible. And yet, as he was there and he's kneeling, they usually prayed standing up, this was something that staggered him. We know the blood is coming from his forehead. He's in total stress, and yet, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Oh, that should be a real balm to our souls, shouldn't it? Oftentimes, the Lord will send in our Gethsemanes a ministering spirit. He did it even for the Lord. Gethsemane means olive press, where the olives are crushed. It's not said in this chapter, but in Matthew and Mark, we know that's the Garden of Gethsemane. Here, into the Gethsemane, he sends an angel to bolster him, to minister to him, and to strengthen him. When you get to heaven, I'm convinced, you're going to be blown away by the times that the Lord sent an angel to you. Whether it be an angel or whether it be another you, like us, ministering spirits, a note, a card, a text, a call, a picture, something that made you smile and gave you hope and strengthened you in the place of crushing. He did it for Jesus. He does it for us. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Sweat became like great drops of blood. And when he rose up from the prayer, and he'd come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter in to temptation. Well, while he was still speaking, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before him and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Wow, how ironic. The way in which you would greet a famous rabbi or your favorite rabbi or the rabbis, you'd stand up and give them a holy kiss. Here, some of the uh, uh, Greek there is, um, you know, he smothered him. 
He kissed him. He wanted to make it obvious that this was the one. This is the signal. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And we know from John that Satan had entered into him and influenced him. Of course, we saw it earlier in Luke. And when those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? They still don't get the idiom. (laughs) We don't operate that way. And one of them struck the servant that turned out to be Peter and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, nah, let him do this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Amazing, isn't it? That Christ acts in mercy and grace when others all around him are acting deplorable. It just pours out of him. Mercy and grace toward the one who'd come to arrest him and had pulled, pulled out, uh, you know, had, had been with all of the, the army and yet Jesus, mercy, grace. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple and the elders who had come out, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you didn't try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Now, this is really fascinating, isn't it? One way that you could summarize the Bible. Ready for this? You could say that the Bible started in a garden, couldn't you? And that the first Adam stood up and bowed his neck in rebellion and did what he wanted to, and he was cursed, wasn't he, to live by the sweat of his brow, and the earth was cursed. And you know that in the ending of the Bible in the last few chapters, we're going to live with God in a garden for eternity. But something happened in a garden in between that makes it all possible. And that's this, that this last Adam, Jesus, it was, uh, if we kept reading there in Romans, we would have seen he's called the last Adam. He's not living by the sweat of his brow, but he's dying by the sweat of his brow. This last Adam, he didn't bow himself up and rebel against God. He's the one that didn't deserve anything, and he submitted and bowed down to the will of God that there must be a sacrifice that I provide, God says. And that sacrifice is my son. The garden begins in a garden, ends in a garden, but in the middle, there had to have been this garden. Well, look at this. They arrest him. They lead him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Now, when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them, and certain servant girls, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with me. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I don't know him. Can you imagine? Just a few hours after he slams his fist on the table and declares, I'll never leave you, Lord. He denied him. I don't know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, you also of them. But Peter said, man, I'm not. You know, in the other gospels, it says they, he curses. He actually curses at them. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, surely this is him. You were with him. He's a Galilean. Peter said, man, I don't know what you're saying. And immediately while he was still speaking, 
the rooster crows. You see, many people believe that roosters were banned from the city during the feasts because they were loud and messy. So when Peter was told a rooster's going to be crowing, he'd think, ah, first of all, I'm not going to do it. But second of all, there's no roosters around. No way. And when he had gone through this trial with Jesus, he got to the place where he was denying himself to people that couldn't harm him, people out in the courtyard that couldn't even do anything to him. He got to that place where he was denying him in that way. What goes through your heart right now? Do you say to yourself, oh, shoot, here's what I say. I'm sure glad he didn't put me in that courtyard. And the next sentence has a lot to do with what you think about the Bible and about God, or the next phrase, and it's this. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Now listen, the way in which you think the Lord looked at Peter says a lot about what you think about the Lord himself. Because see, when you first read that, <laughs> you go, whoo, that searing look of, I told you so, man. I knew you were going to do it. I could have told you you were going to do it. You're a nobody and you're a nothing. You denied me. But see, I don't think that's the way he looked at all. Remember with Noah? Noah found grace in the eyes of God. I think Peter did too. And see, that's what really broke his heart, <laughs> is that the Lord looked at him with grace. You know that look? With grace. The look of, I love you still. I knew it, but I'm not upset. I'm going to restore you, and I'm going to bring you back, and I'm going to use you in a mighty way because you're going to learn how broken you are and how much you need me. <gasps> that's grace. The way in which you think the Lord looked at him is the way in which you think about the Lord. <laughs> the Lord looked at him in grace and mercy, and before the rooster crows, he would remember, you'll deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. It wasn't because the Lord gave him a scalding, searing, terrible look. It was because he gave him a loving, graceful, merciful look. I'm convinced, and it broke his heart. But see, that's what grace does. It breaks your heart. It breaks the stubbornness and the rebellion, and you see inside the reality of who you are, the things that lurk in there. So Peter goes out and wept bitterly. You know this in Psalm 51. What are we told by the psalmist that God wants from us? A broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. He doesn't need your pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. He needs a broken and contrite heart so he can fill you up and shine out of broken pots. That's all we are, are cracked earthen vessels. The problem is we act like Yeti cups. Steel and tough and perfect and could never be broken. Yet he might censor us here. No, we're cracked pots so that the Lord can flow in and out of our lives. Isn't that beautiful? We need the Lord all the time. Here's what I'm going to do.
I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And we're going to do something a little different. As they sing this next song and lead us, there's communion cups on the back. They're going to go through and they're going to sing one time and we're going to remember all that Christ has done for us. I want you to see something as they come up in Ephesians 1. Go there. Go to Ephesians 1, very simple verse. I want you to see something. We've been talking about the death of Christ. Why does it matter? Well, I could go on and on and on for a long time. I'll give you one verse. It just sums it all up. Verse 7, chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians. In Christ, in him, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. If you look up that word redemption, I want to know what redemption is. Don't you want to know what redemption is? I'm like, wow, this is great. I want to follow Jesus. What does it mean that I've been redeemed? It means that he paid something to release you from a debt and that you've been brought back into the family of God, the place or brought into the family of God, the place where you were always intended to live with him, with his family. Without the blood of Christ, if you're not counting on the blood of Christ, if you're not considering the blood of Christ, trusting the blood of Christ, basing your whole life on the blood of Christ, well, guess what? You're outside of that. And you've not been redeemed. You've not been freed out of the debt to come back and to live in his family. And you say, well, that's mean. Why are you saying that? Well, it's not mean. It's what the Bible says. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray right now. They're going to lead us in a song. As they lead us in a song, you go back there. But if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, I want you to pray now to do it. And then you take communion. If you are trusting in a church or religion or uh, your goodness by putting money in the box or helping people across the street, you're missing the boat. It's only by the blood. If you've never trusted in him by the blood, today's the day. I'm going to pray it. You pray with me. If that's you, I want you to come up after we're done. They're going to pray, play this song. You're going to go back and get a cup. Come to your seat. I'll come back up again, and we'll take communion together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for redemption, Lord. <laughs> Through your blood, forgiveness of sins. We had a debt we couldn't pay, and we didn't even have the ability to pay it. And you did it according to your riches, which are in grace. In grace, Lord, just when we consider your grace, it breaks our hearts. So, Lord, I pray for those, if anyone in here has never trusted in the blood of Christ, I'm praying right now for this person. I think there's a, a couple people here who have not done that. I'm praying that they bow their heads and give their life to you, Lord. Come into the family, be redeemed, bought back. Lord, thank you that uh, you have accomplished this. We know that we're sinners in need of a Savior. We need to be justified and redeemed and set free. And if that's Someone here, I'm praying that they would just give their life over to you. Lord, I thank you that many have done that, and we're going to prepare our hearts now to take communion. We're going to go back, and we're going to get the cups, and we're going to come back and sit and sing this song, and we're going to take communion and remember you. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.